This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Zen priest, author, and pioneer in the field of -of end-of-life care, Roshi Joan Halifax, in conversation with Brenda Salgado about death and dying, Buddhism, and social activism. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on November 18, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Good evening. Thank you for being here with us, and thank you, Roshi John Halifax. Thank you. It's an honor to be in conversation with you this evening. So we both have had experiences shepherding folks in their last phases of life in different contexts, and so I was wondering if you would be willing to share a story around a time that uh, you helped shepherd someone in their death process and what that taught you, how that impacted you. You know, I think I, I actually want to start somewhere else, if that's okay. Okay, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, I don't know how you're doing, but I have to say this has been uh, a kind of a 10-day period since the election where I've really struggled. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't want to pretend that... Uh, um, I'm feeling great tonight because I'm not. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of concern uh, on uh, many different levels for the earth, for indigenous people, for people of color, for people who are unusual, for uh, people who need health care. I I feel, you know, my heart is, um, I'm kind of wide open but I'm not the kind of spiritual person who uh, whitewashes things. Yeah. And I'm, um, you know, I'm, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, the, the morning of the election or the day after the election, Wednesday, um, we had a Dharma talk and I, I said, uh, I'm confused. Hmm. You know, uh, I'm feeling so many different things, including, you know, loving kindness and metta and Tonglin and, you know, all the nice Buddhist and Christian things that we've been taught or indigenous things. But I'm, I'm actually, I feel really raw. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just want to put that out to you. Thank you. At the very beginning, because I feel, um, uh, yeah, that. That's where I'm at. So anyway, I don't usually walk on the stage with an iPhone in my hand, <laughs> but um, I wanted to read a, a short poem hmm. um, that uh, Jane Hirschfield, this is kind of the poet Jane Hirschfield, this is the poem that sort of broke her life open. And it's by a great woman poet, Izumi Shikibu, and it goes like this. <clears throat> Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight 
also leaks between the roof planks mm. of this ruined house. Mm. So uh, part of, I feel, the work that um, you do, the work, work that I've been dedicated to is um, to make sure that the moonlight shines through. Yes. If you know what I'm saying. Although it's just, mm -hmm. it's a kind of uh, culture change. Uh, it's a uh, shift in um, uh, political, economic, and social uh, views that we're in. It's a, we're in a time of a, a radical shift. Um, and I feel that the roof planks are very porous. Mm. Um, but the moonlight still shines through. So I, I kind of wanted to begin with that poem, so I'm going to put my iPhone away. <laughs> well, I want to thank you yeah. for that. And then, then I just, you know, I'd like to take a moment, you know, uh, because I just want to ask, does anybody else feel a little raw? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just wanted to check if... You know, yeah. you never know who's going to be in the room with you. I mean, there are probably <laughs> some people out there doing a victory dance, but I'm not doing it, I'll tell you. I'm doing a dance, but it's not victory. Um, it's a, another kind of dance. It's a slow dance. Mm. So, as, as you know, I've been um, uh, in this work, uh, end-of-life care, but lots of uh, other kinds of deaths. Yes. <laughs> You know, I'd like to turn the question over to you. I, I, uh, you were just telling me about accompanying um, a relative in the dying process, Brenda. I, I'd love for you to share that with us. I'd be honored to. Um, so it's been an interesting journey with my auntie. Um, so just to preface that, some years ago, I started on the traditional medicine path, which my grandmother practiced in Nicaragua, and was grateful to be learning that medicine. And there was some fear in my family when I did that, because they were raised Catholic. And there's a lot of things that were taught about those pathways. Um, and I remember particularly two aunts. One of, the, one of them is the one who died, my Tia Carmen, who I love very, very much, um, was one of those folks who was a little afraid of that medicine. But as we started doing ceremony in the family, healing ceremony, she came to remember how much she remembered her mother working with the plants. And, and so uh, late last year, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she was really, really scared. She said she was really paralyzed with fear and just a deep sense of dread and paralysis and grief and um, really afraid of dying. And she approached me in that time and said, will you work with me with the traditional medicine? And I was so honored. I said, I would be so honored to, to work with you. Um, the first healing that we did, we just worked with traditional medicine to help her release some of the fear she had. So when you say traditional medicine, uh -huh. what do you mean? Um, that means a lot of different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I've um, been trained by a lot of elders in Purapecha and Xochimilco, traditional medicine from Mexico. Um, grateful for those elders. And so they taught me how to help heal, help people release negative energy and fear with smudging, with sage, with chaparral, with palo santo, with... Um, 
all kinds of different plants to help release negative energy from trauma that we're carrying and also to infuse good energy, sweet grass, rose water, um, in those places that we carry our energy as well. Um, sweeping with feathers, uh, lots of different things from the animal and plant world that help us to be more grounded and more in our sovereignty over our energy. I think one of the things that my teachers taught me, which was really profound, is that everyone experiences good and bad things in life. And our ancestors knew how to kind of do energetic maintenance in the way that I might change the oil on my car. Um, we can also do energetic maintenance on ourselves, and particularly when we go through traumatic things. And so a lot of that first session was helping her with some of that. And at the end of that first session, she said to me, I'm still scared of dying, but I'm not paralyzed with dread the way I was an hour ago. And I didn't think that was possible. She's like, I actually feel a little happy, and I didn't think that was happen possible for me to both be afraid of dying and happy at the same time. Um, so she said, I want to do this again. Um, the second session, we worked with some medicine called Harmonization and Healing with Roses, which was taught to me by a grandmother from Mexico. Um, and with that medicine, you're, you call up things from your past that have been traumatic and, and where you're able to, to uh, forgive and to be clear about what happened, not as saying that it was right, but saying, I'm not gonna carry that energy with me anymore. And, and from this moment on, I'm gonna care for myself, love myself, respect myself, no matter what people do to me. Um, one of the things my mom told me is that she had a traumatic incident when she was 10 years old that she'd been carrying around all her life and that caused her to be very uh, distant from the family, argumentative, judgmental. Um, and that's where she chose to go that day. And I think because of the urgency of knowing she might die soon, she wanted to release as much mm -hmm. as possible. And it was such a gift, because at the end of that second session, she said, oh my God, I've been so blind. I have a family that really loves me, and I've been holding on to this thing for over 60 years. And I'm letting that go. And she became the most loving bodhisattva in her family in a family that fought a lot. Um, she became this peacemaker in her family um, and just really loving and very playful. I had never seen that side of her. She had not been a playful person. It's like she went back to the 10-year-old girl and became playful again, even, even in the face of like going through chemo and all these things. I was like, wow. Um, after, the third, after that second session, she found out she was terminal. And we went into our third healing session and she said, you know, I'm at peace with this. I know it's my time and I'm surrendering to Creator. But I want to keep healing and releasing before I go. And um, so we did a couple more sessions. And, she, and I can't tell you, like as her body deteriorated, she became more and more loving as a being. And healing a lot of things with her sisters that had been really old, old um, challenges. And really funny, too, she said, I haven't been to Nicaragua for years. I want to go, and I want to go with all my sisters, and you're going to take me wherever I want because I'm dying, and you have to do what I say. <laughs> and so they went on this trip to Nicaragua together, um, 
I arranged for them to see some of my elders there that are medicine people, and they did some healing ceremony with her there, which she really appreciated. And then she came back home. We did a few more sessions and, um, before she passed. Um, but one of the things I said to her, I said, thank you for this gift to watch you on this journey. Thank you for showing me that it's never too late to heal. Thank you for the courage that you're facing this situation with and the amount of healing that you're doing all around you as you prepare for this passing. Um, and most of all, which I still hold a lot, I said, thank you for letting me see the real you. Because I realized that I've, all of my life, I've known the 10-year-old girl who was traumatized and put the wall up. And I am seeing you for the first time with a big open heart, with, um, with who, who you really are. And, uh, and that's the biggest gift you could ever give me. I'm glad I got to really know you before you passed. And then she told me she had done her thesis on the traditional plants of Nicaragua and, when, and, and that she never did anything with it. And I was like, oh, you were supposed to be a medicine person too. And she came here and became a pharmacist but didn't work with traditional medicine. Um, so I call her in. I invoke her every time I'm doing a healing ceremony. Like, thank you for the gift of this journey and thank you for teaching me that it's never too late to heal when we're ready. Yeah, when uh, listening, I remember uh, a line that I said to myself when my father was dying. Because um, I'm very touched that you could bring that to uh, someone so close to you. And um, my, what I said to myself uh, in my father's last day was, oh, um, I wish there was someone like me here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of one thing uh, to um, come alongside uh, strangers and friends, and it's another thing to come alongside a family member whom you're really close to. Mm. And um, mm. the in of that in group um, takes you in. Hmm. So it's a very powerful uh, process um, to bring ceremony into that situation. And I, you know, when Brenda was telling me this story, I, I, I thought about my father's death, and that it was, you know, quite a few years ago. But um, uh, he was in his late 80s, and I really wish there had been somebody like me there. Mm -hmm. uh, but there wasn't, and um, his, uh, he was brought home from the hospital, and at the request of my stepmother, by the way, I married my father to, uh, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> anyway, that's supposed to make you laugh too, <laughs> but any, to my uh, mother's best friend. My mother died, then he married my mother's best friend, so that was nice, and I hmm. did the wedding, so I got to have that joy. But anyway, so she suggested that he come home, and I thought that was a really good idea. So the ambulance brought him home, the gurney came in, and 
Uh, he was uh, just, it wasn't anything uh, specific he was dying of except old age. His, you know, the, the system was withdrawing. Mm -hmm. The body was uh, dropping off. And uh, at a certain point, he um, uh, kind of left. But um, something in him didn't exactly go, and he mm. began to flail. And um, his arms, the skin on his body was very thin from being very old, and he was uh, flailing horribly, and his forearms were literally in tatters mm. from flailing. And... Um, my sister was there with her two children, and it was a very uh, intense uh, and distressing uh, situation. And I uh, stepped behind my uh, father, uh, father's body, um, restraining him would just tear his skin more. Mm. And... Um, I put my hands on either side of his head and I um, bent over him and I said to him hundreds of times, but um, it was the only, you know, it's not like you could say anything that was prescribed. Mm -hmm. And what I said to him was, um, thank you, daddy. And I just, uh, I was in it, you know, I was in this just kind of upwelling of uh, the deepest kind of gratefulness for everything my father and my mother who had gone a decade before, but, you know, everything he had given me. And um, uh, that was my ceremony. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, uh, the body relaxed and then uh, about 10 hours later, uh, he slipped out of it fully. Mm. Yeah. So nobody taught me that ceremony. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It was yeah. like um, uh, the person that would come alongside in a kind of professional capacity wasn't present, um, but the daughter was. Mm. And, uh, you know, as I tell you the story, um, I, I, the feeling, I have a feeling in my body, which was, uh, it was so strong, you know, it was just the uh, release of uh, just unconditional love mm. born out of the deep gratefulness for the gift of this life. So that's my story. It's mm. so <laughs> yeah. beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I called him daddy. Can you imagine? I'm in my 50s. I'm 74. I'll be 75 shortly. I said, call him daddy. You know, it's like, that was my daddy. Thank you, daddy. Yeah. yeah. So this work, I think, is really... Um, it has a kind of outer, inner, and secret dimension. The outer dimension, you know, has to do with how we come alongside. You know, the the we're all going to die. Uh, there was this Woody Allen joke <clears throat> that I used to tell, but uh, you know, I'm just remembering all kinds of stupid things tonight. 
um, as a defense against my broken heart, right? <laughs> Just like, oh my God, I can't believe that this election turned out this way. Oh, and it didn't even turn out this way, but I'll get, a, I'll, you know, I'll... <laughs> uh, anyway, part of, you know, working with dying people, and boy, this feels like a death, actually, to me, is um, how you work with that which is unacceptable. Yes. I mean, that's just, you know, one of the pieces that I think is really critical, and it is not to be, you know, I'm not this kind of like floaty Buddhist, as you probably could tell, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to, excuse me, whitewash anything. Um, you know, for me, that my teacher, Bernie Glassman, you know, bearing witness means that, you know, you're willing to take the plunge, mm -hmm. you know, down to the bottom where the roots of the lotus plant are, but to, you know, hang out in the detritus for as long as you need to. Mm -hmm. So I think this is really important in uh, the work, this courage to um, fail uh, the capacity to um, be with the unacceptable, mm -hmm. um, to sit with moral dilemmas and moral conflicts, um, to uh, bear witness to situations that are uh, untenable um, and that are so out of your control. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons those of us who've done the work this kind of work, and how many of you, I'm just curious, um, uh, are in the end of life care work as a volunteer or a clinician? Mm. Oh, you guys know. That yeah. It's a half of you. You, you know. <laughs> it takes um, a kind of uh, gravity and levity, both, you know, mm -hmm. to hang out with all the different kinds of mortality. Yeah, yeah. That's my little rave, okay. Yeah, yeah, well, it's definitely a dance of appreciating life and being at the end of life and the sorrow and the grief that that entails. Um, and I think it, there's so many parallels for the time that we're in right now. The there's so many parallels, oh, for parallels. The amount of, for the times we're in right now because I think there's things that we're celebrating. You're seeing indigenous folks rising. You're seeing um, Black Lives Matter, you know, folks standing in their dignity and their power in a world and in a system that has not wanted them to do that. And that's really beautiful. And that's, you know, life and affirmation. And at the same time, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot of resurgence of white supremacy that's been hidden and underground. Um, a lot of othering, a lot of violence. Um, so it's interesting, you know, how do we transfer some of that balance that you're talking about, the gravity and the levity around the times that we're in right now? Well, you just came back from Standing Rock, mm -hmm. as I understand it. Yes. Maybe you'd like to talk a bit about that, Brenda. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of uh, violence that happened there near the end of last month. And as a result of that, there was... Uh, um, Father Floberg, who's a, a priest who's very closely connected to the Standing Rock folks, um, was really, really appalled and really wanted to call as much as he could the clergy and spiritual leadership of this country to be there and bear witness. Um, when we get, and he only put the call out maybe seven to ten days 
before. He said, how many of us can get here by November 3rd? Um, we'll have a November 2nd kind of training and conversation about what we're planning, and then November 3rd we'll do an action together. And when we gathered, he said, you know, I was going to be happy if we could get at least 100 people, and over 500 people showed up um, from all these many, many different faiths, many traditions. It was a very powerful time for me as an indigenous person because um, around the sacred fire, every morning around the sacred fire, they, you know, they'd say, Kikapo, get up, it's time to pray. You know, this isn't a vacation, it's not camping, we're here to pray, this is a prayer camp. So early, early in the morning, before sunrise, late at night, praying at the fire, singing, dancing, um, to put up prayers for the land. And so that night that the clergy and the spiritual leadership there was very profound because they all gathered at the sacred fire that morning and a number of them from different traditions spoke at the microphone and said, I and my congregation repudiate the doctrine of discovery, the doctrine that made the theft of all these lands possible, the genocide of Native people possible, um, that legalized, really, in unchurch doctrine, all this atrocity here on these lands. Um, and so that, as an indigenous person, that I could feel ancestrally a lot of healing to have a bunch of spiritual leaders speak that truth out loud. I also um, was really touched because Father Floberg actually got a, a hand-copied version of the original Latin doctrine of discovery. The whole thing was really big. And he asked the elders around the fire, do I have permission to burn this here? <laughs> And they said, not in our sacred fire, but you can burn it next, because this is sending up prayers to our ancestors. We're not putting that in our fire. <laughs> um, and then they, they proceeded to burn it. And I felt this tremendous release and joy when they did that. A bunch of us then walked on, on um, down to where the police were at the barricade, and many different folks of different faiths um, spoke out against what was happening and why it was a moral imperative that people get involved with Standing Rock and with protecting our water and our Mother Earth, and that we follow the leadership of indigenous peoples in this time. Um, there's a lot of prophecy about the medicine bundles of indigenous people coming out to heal humanity right now. Um, what was interesting for me, though, as a socially engaged uh, spiritual activist, was that that was a really beautiful thing, and I think it was well-received by the elders of the camp. I don't know that it on its own would have provided a lot of visibility. So there was a conversation that happened after the action that some of the clergy really wanted to go into Bismarck and to protest outside the governor's mansion and outside one of the entities that was funding the pipeline and to get arrested. They were very clear that they wanted to get arrested because they wanted more visibility. And so that was, for me, as a socially engaged activist uh, and spiritual being in the world, uh, I was really grateful that some of them really, they said, you know, we need to get out there and do this. This is, this is our role. Um, we can't come travel all this way and not do something a little bit more visible. Um, and from my understanding, too, 14 of them were, were um, arrested. They also arrested a native person who they treated much more roughly, not a surprise to those of us who are in this work, but he was treated much more roughly and uh, they spoke out against that. 
And also when they wanted to release them, they said, we're not going to be released until you release that person too. That's uh, cool. That was really beautiful. Um, and Father John Deere was there, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And I know this church put a call out for clergy to go. Uh, yeah. So I really appreciated that. It's on their website, and I know that they brought folks over there. Um, it's very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. Uh, I think one of the things that also touched me is just that um, the elders are seeing so many people coming from all different walks of life that perhaps haven't raised, been raised this close to the land, to the water and ceremony, and don't have that sense of interconnectedness, but have a sense of urgency around what's happening. And he, you know, he kind of counseled some of the folks that were seeing when they were perhaps not behaving in respectful ways. He said, you know, a lot of the people that come here don't understand, um, but by being here and experiencing what we're doing here and becoming a part of it, they will be changed. And, I, and I've seen that time and again, just activists going there, thinking they're going for direct action, which is part of why they're there, but then also being transformed by what it means to be in ceremony with the land every day. Wonderful. Having women lead water ceremony and men lead the fire. And uh, a lot of tears I see when people are leaving the camp because they realize there's another way to live that's deeply connected to the land, deeply grounded and rooted in the land. Yeah. So this brings up, I think, a really important question, and that is, um, you know, the relationship between, uh, you know, our spirituality and social action. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, I just, I wanted to say a few things um, about my own uh, roots in this. Um, like so many people today um, involved in social action uh, or in, in service to others, in service to dying people, there's this kind of uh, um, uh, allocation of our attention outside of ourselves to uh, whatever problem it is, whether it's a dying person or whether it is uh, issues related to social justice or environmental justice. So, you know, by my age, you can imagine um, how uh, passionate and crossed up I was in the 1960s. You know, um, <laughs> it was, uh, this is not like throwback Thursday or something, but, you know, <laughs> and a lot of the young people I work with don't even know about Kent State, you know, mm. hardly know anything about Martin Luther King, you know, don't know anything about the war in Vietnam and how we felt about it. It's really kind of interesting. I have a lot of young people in my life right now, mm. and um, it's like there's a kind of uh, blackout uh, mm -hmm. around, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. It's just, for millennials, it's mm -hmm. just the millennium. So, um, but for non-millennials, a couple of us anyway <laughs> in this space were alive then. And, um, you know, we were involved. And uh, that sense of polarization, of shaming and blaming, of uh, moral outrage, whether it's moral outrage around our medical system, the harm of people mm -hmm. in uh, the indigenous world, or uh, moral outrage about gender violence. Um, mm -hmm. We had it all going for us <laughs> at that time. A whole bunch of us did. 
And um, there was a lot of right and wronging. I mean, that's, uh, you know, was very powerful to uh, sit in a place as a young person and basically um, objectify uh, the people whom we felt were wrong. And um, I think that many of us uh, experienced uh, moral outrage mm -hmm. at this time, um, and we're actually chronically morally outraged. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I would say I'm not. Uh, you know, I ha I have episodic moral outrage, not chronic, <clears throat> but I certainly uh, had it in a more sustained way when I was in my twenties. And then in the mid-60s, um, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, encounter someone who had actually reconciled um, these two perspectives that uh, were critical to me. One was, one of those perspectives had to do with um, the value of turning my attention to my internal life. Mm -hmm. uh, which was um, uh, not easy to do in an upregulated state. And the other um, part, uh, so not only, you know, was I suffering, but everybody, you know, in the mandala of my world, was we were all suffering. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, meditation and practice and the view, uh, a Buddhist view, was really uh, critical at this time. You know, it was touching us, uh, teaching us, um, making a difference to us. But also, we wanted to transform the social order. Yeah. We were uh, afraid. And um, we were, I just, I'm like, oh God, I'm glad I lived so long to know why I was so afraid 50 years ago. <laughs> Gosh, gee whiz, um, this is, this is really, uh, I, I said it the other night in some kind of public event, I've forgotten what it was, but I said, you know, I, I feel some kind of gratitude for uh, having, being alive today because the, it's the most, uh, complicated equation that I, I actually could ever imagine to have this loose cannon with his hand on the nuclear trigger, mm -hmm. among other things. So, um, but I met this little guy, and he was this young guy. He was older than me, but he was still a young guy, and um, he uh, um, uh, had come from France to the United States um, to make a point to our country about uh, not continuing to be a presence in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And it, I, it was Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized, wait a minute, this guy is really, uh, this is really important. He's bringing together what looked like um, irreconcilable uh, dimensions of uh, how we work in the world, perceive in the world, and he's reconciled and bringing the contemplative dimension and the social action. He's integrated the contemplative dimension and the social action dimension. And that really stirred me up <laughs> and down. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. it was like, wow, somebody here is this very soft-spoken Vietnamese monk 
whom one Buddhist teacher described as a cloud with a machine in it. (laughs) And um, I went, that's it. I mean, this is the work. Um, How we actually uh, train the heart, the mind, and the body. And, you know, I I don't see those as separate because we're in a a world that um, silos heart, mind, and body from each other. So when, you know, a few years later, um, Stan Groff and I, who, well, as a Czech psychiatrist, you, everybody in, you know, California knows him. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he was my ex-husband, um, and uh, he and I uh, did this really interesting work with dying cancer patients mm-hmm. using LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy in a you know contemporary rite of passage. And it was really powerful mm-hmm. because then I began to understand, one, is that I personally had underestimated the human mind. <laughs> uh, number two, that <clears throat> the kind of ceremony that you're talking about <clears throat> which is transformational, um, is uh, an experience that is basically more or less disallowed in um, our culture, not your culture, but our Western sort of white culture, and that people were maturationally not very developed um, and hadn't gone through these periods of of, uh, having the context for the experience of dying and being reborn. Hmm. So in the LSD work that Stan and I did, it was really powerful because, you know, these people were in the middle, late phase of active dying. Hmm. But, um, you know, uh, they had an opportunity to really metabolize, like your flower, your rose ceremony, to really metabolize, you know, Mm -hmm. bring to the surface, um, if you will, karmic knots that uh, were making the dying process uh, complexifying it and mm-hmm. this was you know a really liberative liberating experience and I just I was just at a meeting last week it's like I'm not a psychedelic person anymore so I you know you can <laughs> check that box you you know been there done that uh, but anyway I I ended up on a panel on psychedelics so it's like oh my god <laughs> this is throwback Thursday again but um you know, what's kind of weird to have this sort of, you know, you know, American Enterprise Institute nightmare unfolding, you know, as this psychedelic resurgence is happening. I mean, it's just, we're kind of in a wild time. But, you know, I did, um, to, I, uh, you know, I'm an old Buddhist. I've been doing this since 65. So, you know, finally I gave up drug, sex, and rock and roll. But... Um, <laughs> The, the deal for me has been um, to, you know, understand the value of that kind of ceremony in people's mm-hmm. lives. And so, you know, I kind of spoke positively about the, the LSD work. I think but it was you know, really and it's great triggering for people. a memory in me of a conversation I had with a Buddhist colleague recently. So I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, so, and for confidentiality, I'll keep his name unknown. Um, but as someone who's trained in Buddhism and um, in probably the last, I'm not sure, maybe the last decade of his life has also been 
going to ayahuasca and wichuma ceremonies um, with elders that he knows. And one of the reflections he gave back to me recently, which I thought was really interesting because it, it aligns with somewhat what you're talking about, he said to me, you know, I went to therapy and I meditated for decades. And those are really good practices and I don't re regret them at all. But my experience is that they helped me really analyze and understand my trauma, but did not help me release it. And then I went to a Wichuma ceremony in 12 hours. It was gone, you know, this trauma that I was carrying. And then ayahuasca, which he said was a little more intense for him, other trauma gone. And he said, so he was just really getting curious as someone who's, a, you know, a Buddhist teacher and that's his primary path in the world right now. This, is there a time, you know, where it's appropriate for us to bring different modalities together to provide healing and always being careful because I think there are people in all traditions that carry medicine in good ways and people that carry medicine in not so good ways and are not responsible with the people they're shepherding. But that's true of all traditions, right? People are doing it from ego or people who are doing it in service and humility. But yeah, it just, it brings up that question for me of like, how do we get curious about these ceremonies from all traditions? I mean, I know that of Sami people who live in the Netherlands who are still really connected to their ceremonies and um, how do we get curious about but like what the Dalai Lama says, there are 84,000 Dharma doors. Yeah. You know, I, I would not prescribe meditation for everybody in the world. Yeah. I wouldn't prescribe LSD for everybody in the world. I, you know, <laughs> which is, it's like, you know, there's an, um, I don't regret that experience. I think it deepened my life, um, but it actually created some interesting problems mm -hmm. that meditation solved. So, you know, I think that we have different paths. So uh, each of us, you know, I th being sensitive to what really serves mm -hmm. and um, uh, practice for me um, has been, uh, you know, if I look at the person I was when I was 25 and now it's 50 years later, um, I'm really grateful for my practice. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Me too. So you know, I'm I just I'm sensitive to the time. I just realized we've been sitting here rapping. So I want to thank you very I much. Wanna thank you too. And thank you all so much. And uh, I'm grateful that you showed up on this Friday night in San Francisco. And um, some of you I'll see tomorrow in the program and some of you I hope you'll come to Upaya in New Mexico it's a completely outrageously beautiful radical uh, Zen center yes. some of you have been there so thank I you I want to offer you a gift because it's in the tradition of my ways to always offer a gift um, it's a lingam stone which is the balance of the masculine and the feminine oh wonderful so, thank, thank you. you so much thank you for being here with us in Thank this you. precious time and conversation. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Okay. Well. 
been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.